Welcome back to your Love and Grit Summer. I'm Laia. I'm Justin. And I'm Rachel. This week's episode is all about the Philly Takeover. Two dope Philadelphians, two different industries, and yes, they are changing all the rules. Daryl Austin is changing the rules and creating and designing your favorite sneaker. Camille Bell is redefining cosmetics for the beautifully brown girls by creating lipsticks that actually are what they appear. Imagine it. Get your shopping fingers ready because these two are about to have you spending for a good reason. But first, around the Philly babes, and what are we talking about today, Justin? Your favorite place to watch movies outdoors. Rachel, you go first, but I do have to say something. I can't believe there's 70 places to do this in our region. That's what I love. Our region is so massive and amazing that, yeah, that's a huge number. And that question to me, if the weather is pleasant, you know, we've had this heat wave, Mount Airy has a lot of outdoor screenings now all the way up until like the end of September. Mine is a cemetery. A cemetery. Laurel Hill Cemetery from Kelly Drive. You can see it. Yes. I've actually done a 5K run there during Halloween. I mean, it's a crazy- Wait, did you have a costume on? You know, I don't really do costumes. So like maybe my face was painted, I think, like a cat. So wait, for their screenings, is it typically during Halloween or they- No, they do it during the summer. Oh, I love that. Wait, wait, are, are all the movies scary? Because I can't be in a cemetery and... I don't even like scary movies. But that is a different experience. And I think folks should check that out and check out the 70 locations that folks can choose from to watch an outdoor film. On visitphilly.com. Yes, sir. Let's get the show started. I don't know where to start with Daryl Austin. I mean, this is a man who went from self-taught designer who learned about sewing, embossing, whatever that means, and detailing, to being the first Philadelphia brand designer to be carried in Foot Locker. You know bungee sneakers, but uh, how? And yes, somewhere in the middle of this story is a Paoli High School star football player who turned down college scholarships for a record deal and tour life, all to lead him down some roads that few return from. However, that was the beginning of his life. What has derived and grown from this story has led Daryl to become one of Philly's proudest innovators and entrepreneurs. I just started to become a sneakerhead. How did you get into sneakers? All right, first of all, what's your definition of a sneakerhead? I mean, Ooh, I, I don't even know. I mean, like in the host questions, I like. I it. just started to like wear sneakers with more dressy clothes, like a dressier okay. occasion. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah, I, I got to tell you a background story. He went to a gala, okay, where <laughs> folks were in tuxedos. And it wasn't like a, a sneaker gala, you know, gowns and galas. He was just like, you know what? I'm going to put on my tuxedo blazer and I'm rocking my sneakers with it. And so he's now, most of our dinners or work dates, I know what he's wearing, but he, he looks good doing it. So I think when he says sneakerhead, he's saying that I can wear what I want to wear, look good doing it. And I don't care the occasion because this sneaker is fly. Like, I feel like that's Jay's version of a sneakerhead. Um, (laughs) You know what? My definition of a sneakerhead is someone that just enjoys sneakers. And it doesn't matter what the brand is or anything about them. And I feel like I'm a sneakerhead. Like I have in my closet, everything from kangaroos, the pro kids, the converse, everything. How many pairs? I thought you were going to tell us a number. How many pairs of sneakers do you have in your closet? I have over 400. (sighs) How do you decide what to wear? Well, some of them, 
I basically like collect. Right. So like maybe ones, wear them once yeah. or never wear yeah, them and, at all. And, and I'm the type of person I've been like this ever since I was a kid. Whenever I wear my shoes, I'm, I'm right back home with the toothbrush and the, and the towel trying to wipe everything off. So everything that I have is in really good condition. I've been saving sneakers or collecting sneakers for about maybe like seven years now. I've always had a lot of sneakers, even when I was a kid. But, you know, as time progresses and things happen, you start to lose things or people steal them and stuff like that. So do you categorize like in your closet, you know, this section will be more of a casual look or do you even have photos like outside of the box of which sneaker or no, you just I have a sneaker room. And the whole side of my wall is just sneaker shelves. I have like lights around and my sneakers have full-time discos. I do everything by color, but then like I have a collection that I get out of a Neiman Marcus type store and I have all those in one section. So this pair of sneakers may be 1200, this pair may be 700, but I keep all the super expensive stuff on one side and all the other ones kind of gradually just fit in. Your story is amazing and you love to tell it, which is great too. At first I didn't because it was very embarrassing, but I found out that the more that I spoke upon it, the more people got a chance to get inspired by it. At first I was very, very adamant about not speaking about it because to me, I feel like being incarcerated is embarrassing. And I definitely took responsibility for everything that I've done, but some people, they don't want to accept that. So like for me, I sold drugs and people that may have lost a family member from drug abuse or something like that, they kind of look at me like I'm the bad guy. So it's kind of hard to be able to express it because you never know what people are going to think. But I do know that there's a lot of people in my community and other communities that are similar to mine that learn from my story. I prevent some people from doing certain things after I tell them about the story. And I just really want to be able to help people understand drugs and drug use and all that is wrong. So that's what my ultimate goal is with me telling my story. How did you even first begin marketing once you designed this shoe? Fortunately for me, I ended up working at a barbershop. At that barbershop, it was very popular. So I knew everyone in the neighborhood and there were people coming outside of the neighborhood that would come to the barbershop. So I started selling my merchandise there. Before I actually got a chance to have a real full launch, a lot of people already knew about my brand before I even got a chance to even market or promote it. So I basically started in my own neighborhood and kind of just branched out. And I remember at one point, of course, my merchandise wasn't as good as it is now because I was just starting out. And I remember there were guys that were like, man, it's not high quality. And they were like grinding me up about, you know, the fake leather and stuff like that, which I didn't know at the time it was. Now I that would be to, chic. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what I started to do was try to find ways to be able to prove to them that I was worthy of their money. So what happened was I ended up hiring a PR person and I ended up telling him my story and how I got started. And he took that story to the press and it just kept going and going and going. And, you know, I thought that it was just going to be a little 10 second preview on channel three, because that was the very first channel that covered me. And I remember standing out front of Blue Soul Shoes saying, we love Blue Soul Shoes. We love yeah, Blue yeah. Soul Shoes. Yeah. He's the one that, that actually launched my shoe first. So I was standing oh, out in front cool. of the store and I was holding my sneaker like, my name is Daryl Austin. My sneaker just came out today of Blue Soul Shoes. I created this while I was incarcerated. Please check out my brand. And that was the 10 second that I had. And then after that, the news people just kept hitting us up and asking for the story and asking for the story. And before you knew it, I was on every single local channel in Philadelphia. Then it was Inside Edition. Then it was the Today Show. Then the Nick Cannon Show. It just kept going and going and going and going. And before I knew it, I didn't even get a chance to market anything because the news was doing all the marketing for me in the magazines and stuff. And it all started just because I was trying to prove to the people in my neighborhood that I was worthy of getting a chance because I, I knew that my brand was good enough. Once I started doing all these different things, I started to look at my Instagram page. I'm seeing people following us from Atlanta, New York, 
Chicago, Detroit. Do you still work with the same publicist? Yeah, his name is Peter Breslow. Okay, Peter. Booty yeah, everyone, everyone Booty I started off working with, they're, they're all still here with me. I love you know? that. So it's like, I basically started a tight-knit group of people. We're all family now, and this, we're in this together. You sitting in a prison cell, could you ever in your wildest dreams imagine, you know, like you're having a trunk show at King of Prussia Mall, which is like the best mall <laughs> in the country, obviously our local mall. But like, did you see yourself that way then? No. I'm interested to know what you, like what was going <laughs> through your mind not. then. Absolutely not. I remember when I was incarcerated, I, I started doing my sketches. I have a bunch of sketches on my wall over here. Did and, you always um, sketch? Like, could you always no, draw? No, not at all. The only thing that I knew how to do before I went to prison was rap. And I knew how to sell drugs. That was the only two things that I did. I never had a job before. I never ran a business before, anything like that. One day I was at the prison and I was talking to my mother on the phone and she started getting on me about what I was going to do when I came home. Because she was like, you know, your background check is going to kill everything and every opportunity that you could possibly think of. And she started crying and that kind of made me be like, let me get myself together. So I went back to the cell and I prayed. And after I got them praying for basically the first time, something told me to pick up a pencil and start sketching. I don't know what it was. I don't know why a sneaker was the choice, but I started sketching a sneaker. And when I sketched it, it looked like it was a real shoe on a piece of paper. So I was like, how did I do this? So then out in the yard, there was a whole bunch of guys that would try to do artwork and stuff like that. So I just started taking my artwork to people and I started giving them packs of cigarettes to show me how to do shading and do different things to be able to enhance the photo. So at first, I really was just focused on just trying to get artwork. I didn't really think about doing my own sneaker company. And then after I ended up getting like 75 sketches done, my inmate that was in there was like, you really need to focus on trying to get your own brand. And I was already doing my own shoes anyway. I just, I just didn't have a title on the, on the shoes. I started reading books, got my mom to send me books on how to make shoes and how they're originated and what the most important parts of the shoes were. So I did that process. And then after that, I started to learn how to do a business plan. So once I did the business plan and I had all the business part done, I was ready to go. So how long did it take you to actually launch Bungie? When I first came home from prison, I had to save up money to be able to get my first sample. And I was dibbling and dabbling with samples for like the first year. And then after like the first year and year and some change, a guy came in and asked me for a pair of sneakers that I didn't have. I told him why I didn't have it. I didn't have the finances. And he was like, do you have a business plan? I was like, of course I do. We met like two days later. He loved the business plan. He gave me $50,000. So I want to say about wow. two years, two years after I started getting samples, he gave me the 50,000 and I was off to the races. He but came in where? He came, you said he came he into came the in... barbershop. He came oh, into oh, the barbershop okay. I worked at. And I didn't know him. I didn't have any relationship with him. He just asked if I had those shoes that were in the window. Because what I would do is I would get samples done. And then I would put all the samples in the window. And since I wasn't busy, because no one would get in my chair since I was a new barber, <laughs> you know, I would just sit there and I would just stare at the sneakers in the window. And he came in one day and was asking me about the shoes and I told him what they were. And I went from there. Did but he I, let you I, cut his hair? Yeah, yeah. Well, at the time, How I wasn't his barber. I cut his hair towards the end of me working at the barbershop, but he wasn't my client. He was another guy's client. But in true typical Bungie fashion, because I named the company Bungie because I had so many ups and downs in my life. The $50,000 didn't really do much for me. Like it gave me a learning experience because I lost it all right after that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Once I ended up getting my first shipment in, I didn't know anything about customs tax. I didn't know anything about import export brokers and cargo ships and stuff like that. So a lot of that money went towards getting the inventory here. 
And then once I actually got the inventory here, I looked at it like, well, I have about $500,000 worth of inventory. I'm just going to hit the streets and just go. But then the inventory wasn't as good as the sample. So I'm stuck with dead inventory and I'm stuck with nothing but shoes that were bad. After that, I had about maybe like $7,500 left. And I remember this like it was yesterday. I remember we were in the barbershop. We're watching the Eagles parade from them winning the Super Bowl. My friend turns around and he's like, man, if you had something with Eagles on it, you'll be rich right now. So immediately the light bulb went off. I made some Eagle sneakers and I ended up getting the sneakers back literally the day before the first opening game after they won the Super Bowl. And I woke up that morning and Fox 29 was having a um, pep rally for the Eagles. So I packed up this truck that I rented and I drove down to Fox 29 with the shoes and I pulled them out and I pretty much sold out that day. Like that was That's everything amazing. That I had, I sold out. So that gave me my chance. I mean, this has in. happened pretty quickly where you've yeah. gone from selling sneakers out of your van to how many stores? Before COVID hit, we had probably about like 20 stores that was carrying our stuff. But once COVID hit, I took everything out because business was slow. I didn't want to get taken for the sneakers and stuff like that. So now I'm really, really selective with what stores that we go in. Which is smart. Obviously, you figure that out, that it's like the more selective you are, the more people want things. How do you select brands that you decide to work with? And then you mentioned being previously a hip hop artist. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I started off as a hip hop artist when I was in about seventh grade. I ended up getting a record deal when I was in 10th or 11th grade. Wait, wait back to that other question. So how, okay. how did you even mark yourself or how did people find out who you were and what you were about? I had a cousin that was dating someone that was a relative of a person that worked at a record label. They're no longer together anymore. But back then, his girlfriend it worked for you. Taking my demo tape. Yeah, she took my demo tape to a record label. We got management and a deal right then. So at oh that point, God. I had to decide if I was going to be a rap artist, if I was going to be a football player, because I had D1 schools that were trying to come at me for football as well. So I didn't want to get hit anymore. I didn't want to play football. I wanted to be a rap artist. I found out very quickly that at that particular time, I can't speak on it today, but at that particular time, the music business wasn't as lucrative as it is today. So all the people that I thought were like millionaires and super rich, they were borrowing people's cars and borrowing jewelry and borrowing houses and stuff like that for music videos. So it wasn't as working with shoe brands in order to be featured and wear the clothes. (laughs) So I ended up taking an advance money that I got from a record label and I went and I bought a whole bunch of marijuana with it. Excuse my language, but I, I did that. I'm not condoning this behavior at all. But at the time, I'm thinking I can't work a full-time job and do music at the same time. I can't leave and go do shows. You know, I pretty much just finance myself. And I would just go out on the road and I would do everything I needed to do to promote myself. And as soon as I started to get a bunch of radio play, I went to jail for, Mm. you know, for I got busted. I would do a year or two. I would come home. I'll start all over again. I would build the hype back up. I would go back and still sell drugs like I already knew. And then right before I would get this big deal, I would get busted again. And then I would do three years that time. I would come home and I would do the same exact thing. And then nine months later, I got hit again. And I ended up six and a half years in prison after that. Talking about Bungie, definitely. (laughs) And literally, when I I got arrested for the six and a half years, I literally just left opening up for Nelly. I was doing shows with Nelly and all these major acts. And you literally, so you kept repeating the cycle where you literally came right up against it. I mean, six and a half years is no joke. Oh, I know it's not. (laughs) You said who you challenged. I know it's not. I mean, a day in prison is no joke. I basically had to find ways to be able to keep my mind occupied while I was there. And it wasn't as bad once I got into a routine. So I ended up going to barber school. 
I ended up getting like one of the highest grades at the school. I became one of the barber's aides. I was working in the barbershop full time, but I wasn't working in the barbershop. I was sketching. So I had like a full schedule that kept me busy while I was there. And both of those crafts that I was doing in prison is what I ended up doing when I came home. So let's go back to that other part of the question. You mentioned making sure that you're selective with which stores your shoes appear and who you work with. How do you go about selecting what's the best match for your brand? Usually when I talk to the store owner, I can tell if they are very interested in the product or if they're just doing it just to be doing it. And I don't want to be in a store that's just doing it to be doing it because they're not going to promote our brand. So now it's like, you know, we have a couple big deals on the table. Those two places I already knew were very excited about dealing with us. So I was very interested in dealing with them from the very beginning anyway. And then also, just so you guys know, I did do something with Foot Locker as well. So Foot Locker carried our stuff too. I love that. Like here you are, this entrepreneur, you know, you're Philadelphian. What do you love about Philly as it relates to either being an entrepreneur or simply this being your hometown? I feel like Philly, it makes you stay hungry. You know, like think about Sylvester Stallone with with Rocky. I watched Rocky a million times and that dude never gave up even after he was getting knocked out all the time. So I kind of based my life around that and I got that from being in Philadelphia. I'm not from the city of Philadelphia. I'm from the suburbs of Philadelphia. Like I live near King of Prussia Mall, but I was in Philadelphia all the time. And I think that, you know, I got that hunger, that drive and that hustle mentality just from being in Philadelphia. That's that love and grit, baby. That's what it is. (laughs) So what do you have coming up? Big things. Yes. I'm actually doing a joint venture with Banana Republic. Very excited about that. Me too. Because it's one of my favorite brands and they need shoes. Yeah. Yeah. So we're doing something together and we're going to actually do some videos and stuff to promote the collaboration between the two. And the one that I was really, 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 really excited about was Neiman Marcus. I've been a fan of Neiman Marcus for pretty much my whole oh, ever, life, ever? adult life. Like even when I wasn't even able to afford anything in Neiman Marcus, I was a fan of Neiman Marcus. And I still just, can't afford anything. Girl, do you see the aggressive dimpling? Like, yes, yes, we love yeah, Neiman yeah. Marcus. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I remember there were times I would go in Neiman Marcus and I would just window shop and just wish that I could end up buying something out of here one day. So for me to actually be able to have any sort of launch at all in Neiman Marcus, which is going to be in October. I'm really excited about it. Like, I just can't wait. Like, I look at the sneakers that are going to be in there all the time because I have a few of them here. I just can't wait for that day to be able to stand in front of the store, walk and the in, one at King of Prussia, and actually especially. see my shoes on the shelf in there. It's going to be the most amazing thing for me ever. Attention, ladies. Wait, no, it's not just about us. Ladies and gentlemen. Wait, no, still not inclusive enough. Attention makeup lovers everywhere. Imagine a cosmetics line whose literal goal is to serve our pro-black, pro-fat, pro-queer communities by rejecting universal shades and attempting to set a new standard for beauty in the makeup industry. Think lipsticks for our actual lip tones, Black folks. Because hello, our lips come in different colors too, right? Life-changing, I know. Well, meet Philly and Temple's own Camille Bell founder of Pound Cake Cosmetics Company. It has been a year since her launch. Yes, only a year. And Camille has already taken her company to places unknown to most startups, winning beauty awards from Glamour and Allure magazines. And she's literally just getting started. Oh, 
gorgeous. Love your lipstick. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, we're talking to you about makeup, so. Right. I had to beat my face today. You Wait, what do you amazing. mean beat your face? Put a good beat on it. Like, you know, contour, blush. Bake it. Bake it, baby. Bake it. Baking it. Yeah. So. I don't understand any of this. I did start just using moisturizer, though. That's great. Good for you. Seriously. Baby steps. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. How did you get um, started with your brand? I was in Temple Student Government and I had just graduated my advisor for Temple Student Government. I was just having a one on one with him in his office because I was like, I don't have a job lined up. I mean, I had a consulting gig, but I was like, I just know that I want to be really happy in my career and doing what I love. And we had a heart to heart. And he's like, well, what do you love? And I was like, well, I love makeup. And I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. And he was like, well, you should go to Blackstone Launchpad. And I was like, oh, what is that? And he was like, it's an incubator for current students, faculty and alumni of Temple. And if you go there, they'll help you bring whatever business idea you have to fruition. And so I went there. I told the director at the time, Dr. Julie Stapleton Carroll, what I wanted to do and the need I saw in the cosmetic industry. And she was like, okay, you need to pick a name. You need to print out business cards. She started Googling like makeup conferences. And she was like, you need to go to New York next week. There's a big one and just start networking. She put me in some pitch competitions and it just like took off from there. Wow. I love that. So do you network a lot with other folks in your industry that are from Philadelphia? I think about Ursula Augustine from Ursula's About Face for in-house makeup studio. How do folks work with networking within the industry? Yeah, you know, what's interesting. Once we launched and I guess we started getting some press, but specifically Philly press, people started reaching out to me in the Philly community that have like skincare brands and spas and stuff like that. And so I started connecting with them. How did you even know how to go about matching skin tones? And is there a way that you guys service folks that people know that, oh, for me, it's not just the color I like, but this would be amazing for you in general? Yeah. So I guess to answer your first question, how I discovered that was through my own personal experience. I would go into a retailer and I would look at the lipsticks. Let's just say red to keep it simple. It would look red on the model that was being advertised. And then when I would get home and put it on, it would look orange on me. And what I came to find out was that a lot of these color cosmetic companies are creating one shade and they'll say, oh my God, it's universal or it's made for all, but it's really not because I'm going to wear a different red than some of my friends who are darker and that have a darker lip tone. And so how we tested that was even if you got like a white sheet of paper and a black sheet of paper and I put and I swiped the exact same color on each paper on the black paper, it's going to look orange and on the white paper, it's going to look red. And so what we did was we were like, okay, we had to make slight variations of red so that depending on your skin tone, it actually shows up as red. And so for instance, like one of our colors, let's say our maraschino color on someone who's like lighter skin and who has pink lips, it looks like a blue red. But for instance, my friend Katora, who's darker skin, when she wears it, it kind of looks like a orange-ish red. And so if Katora wants a red red, I actually had to make hers orange red. It's a lot of color theory, but what we did was we got these skin tone papers and just did a lot of swatches. We did a lot of focus groups in Philly where we just had people come into our office space and swatch until we got the right 
shade. And then we took that to our lab and that was an entire process. But that's pretty much why it took us four years to launch is because we were really trying to nail down the color theory. So were you shocked when the lines sold out that same night of your launch? Yeah, I actually was. I was a little nervous. I was like, a lot of people had been anticipating because it took us four years to launch and we only had a certain amount of units. And so when we sold out like that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is happening. That's definitely what it felt like. People see a need for our product and what we're doing. And yeah, it was a lot of validation. And then of course, when like the reviews started coming in, because the first part is like selling, but then you wait for reviews. So then when we got reviews coming in saying how much they love the product, you know, that was just even further validation for us. How did you get the word out? How were people waiting? I started documenting our journey on Instagram and we only had like 800 followers, but those 800 followers were like, uh, but you know what? If 800 followers, if 1% is buying something, if they yeah. are 800 strong customers, clients, whatever, that makes a difference yeah. in somebody on Instagram saying, Oh my God, I have to have this, but never purchasing. So right, that's a good point. And so, yeah, we had accumulated about 800 followers. And then I think what really set the tone and people were like, oh, wow, we're two major things. The first was we had a successful Indiegogo campaign. My partner and I, you know, we don't come from money. And so some of my peers were like, oh, my parents are taking out like a $50,000 line of credit for me. Or they worked in tech for like a few years. So they had a good amount saved up. That was not us. We had just graduated. In fact, my co-founder at the time was still at Temple. And so we had a successful Indiegogo campaign where we raised a little over $20,000 and we had like a big rooftop party at our co-working space. And so once we hit our goal, people are like, oh, wow, this is serious because it's hard to hit your goal on GoFundMe, Indiegogo, or even Kickstarter. And the fact that we surpassed it, people are like, oh, this is legit. Camille and Johnny are serious about this. So that was like the first thing. And then I think the second thing was two years ago when Glossier had announced that they were doing their first ever grant initiative for small Black-owned beauty brands. And we were selected, one of 14, and they had 10 10,000 applicants. And so that was like the second boost. And so, yeah, we continued documenting our journey. And I think that's how we were able to get the word out before we launched. So what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs as far as what you've experienced, whether it be as a result of the economy, the pandemic, or just launching your business? Uh, My first piece of advice would be whatever you're about to launch, you have to be really passionate about it. And it's helpful if you're solving a problem, because if you're solving a problem, that passion is going to be there because most of this journey has been just straight failures and no, and they're big accomplishments, but we can count on one hand our quote unquote wins. And so you have to be really passionate about what you're doing because it's pretty much a lot of no, 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 And forever long it takes to get to a yes. And then you'll celebrate that one. That'll be really cool. And then it's back to like, no, no, grinding, grinding, grinding. And so what's going to help you sustain that enthusiasm is if you're enthusiastic about the problem that you're solving. And then number two, I would say is don't compare yourself. That is completely easier said than done. It's really hard in the world we're living now where when I first started Pound Cake, TikTok wasn't even a thing. 
And even at that time, it was still hard not to compare yourself to other people on Instagram. But now you have Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. And so you're just scrolling and you're seeing someone like, oh, my God, I made two hundred thousand dollars in one day. And you're like, dang, like <laughs> for some people, it took them three years to make two hundred thousand. That's still a great accomplishment. I mean, it and took you four years to launch like it's about patience nothing's gonna yeah. happen quickly in that yeah field. exactly and you it know was- it more than anybody else well, you, right. were, you attended temple are you originally from philly so i graduated from downingtown west high school and then i came to temple it's the summer you know what's your favorite thing about the region I really like the parks i like going to fairmount park johnny and i usually go and play tennis I mean, I know that's more of a low key thing. Is you're allowed to relax and enjoy. I love those four courts right there. Like, yeah, I'm very familiar with that. And I go and get water ice afterwards. Right. Right. Yeah. I think because what we do is so stressful, it's really nice to just be around nature and kind of get out of the center city area and go play tennis and be at one with nature. And so that's one of the things that I love to do in the summer. And then I would say all the new restaurants that are always opening up, trying out new restaurants. That's always exciting. So what's next? What are you planning? We are planning. It never stops, right? (laughs) It never stops. I mean, we're planning to raise funding. We want to raise 1.5 million to aid in quicker product expansion and product launches. And we also want to get into a major retailer. And so I can't disclose a retailer, but We've had three talks now with a major, major retailer, and we also applied to be in their accelerator. So fingers crossed, we just had a second round interview. So I'm hoping we get into that. If we get in, we'll get 50,000, which we would use to kickstart our raise. We were just talking to Daryl Austin from Bungie. The first investment he got was $50,000 too. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's good to know. Even if we raise just half a million, that's the one thing about being in Philly. Like we're really about that grit and we can take a little bit and make it go a long way. Entrepreneurs sure work hard, but it's great to see the hard work paying off for these Philadelphians. Absolutely. I'm appreciative that they were able to take the time to appear as guests on the podcast because, you know, once you're a guest of Love and Grit, you're part of the Love and Grit family. So yes, these are great ambassadors for our region and they're doing amazing work. And all over the world. Yep. Follow us on the socials at Love Grit Philly and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.